Well, I titled this message, The Christian's Obligation in a Day of Darkness. And I take that last part, Day of Darkness, from verse 12, where it says, The, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. We, we are in a season of darkness, prophetically, as God is working out His plan. But the, the light will come, right? The glorious light of the Lord Jesus Christ, who proclaimed Himself to be the light of the world, will come. But unfortunately, the darkness will, will get even darker before that day. Romans 1 through 12, we talked much about doctrine. 1 through 11, then beginning in chapter 12, Paul turns his attention to the practical obligations and exhortations for the Christian to live a life that would bring glory to Christ in a world of darkness. We've, we've, we've laid the foundation, or Paul laid the foundation, for where we are now as believers. He spoke about our justification, that's, that's past tense, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. You were justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 8, he, he spoke about our glorification, that's yet future. So now what we're really dealing with, not that we haven't touched upon it in other portions of Romans, but principally in Romans chapter 12 through 15, sanctification. So what are the three differences? You know them. Justification, right? We have been saved right, from our sins. Sanctification, we are being saved from the power of our sins through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And then glorification, praise God, one day we will be saved from what? From the very presence of sin forever. So if somebody asks you, if, you've been, if you're saved, you could say, yeah, I've been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. But you have to explain that to them, right? All right, so look with me then in Romans chapter 13, just back up to what we spoke on last week for just a moment. Paul says in verse 5, Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. This is subject to the authorities that are over us. For this reason or cause, pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers. We talked about this. They are God's servants, God's deacons, attending continually upon this very thing. They are doing His will. Then in verse 7, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, Custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So that verse 7, rendered all their dues, refers to our obligations to those who are in authority over us in the government. The word dues is simply a sum or an amount that is owed. It's referring to a financial obligation. Metaphorically, in the scripture, it refers to Marital duties, 1 Corinthians 7, 3. Let the husband render unto wife due benevolence. That same word, their dues. And likewise also the wife unto her husband. So we were to render our dues. He mentions tribute. This was the, the, the Roman tax, annual tax that was levied upon houses, lands, and other things. But it could refer to any obligation that a person has, but in this context, it's a, a financial obligation. Custom was really what we would be the equivalent of our sales tax. It was primarily a tax on goods, and it was a tax used to pay people who worked for Rome. 
So that's where they would derive their money to pay them. And then he mentions that there is an obligation to, to fear, to fear and honor. Show proper respect and honors to, to those to whom fear and honor is due. However, the main, the main focus here, the main obligation from these verses involves a financial obligation or a debt. And Paul's going to carry that thought for, forward when we get to verse 8. But I should mention to you that there, there is a, an alternative interpretation to what this debt means when Paul says, owe no debt to any man. Um, and there is actually some rabbinical support and Jewish support for this idea from different writings. But uh, the belief is that it's referring to spiritually indebt- indebtedness. Don't be spiritually indebted to anyone by sinning against them. And they see that parallelism coming in in verse 13 where Paul says, love does no harm. Love does not sin against anyone. Love does not incur a debt against anyone. That's a very minority position, and I'm not persuaded by it. But verse King, in the King James verse, chapter 13, verse 8, O no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. That's verse 8. The Nasby has owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. The, the word nothing, medice, is a very comprehensive word. So it could read, oh, not even one man anything. Oh, not a single thing to anyone. So the teaching here, and I need to be clear about this, is not that you can never incur debt. There have been people who've taught this. I can give you some names. But that's not what this is saying. Because if that is a sin, then most Christians are in sin, right? I'm pretty, pretty, pretty assured that many of you are carrying some form of debt here this morning. But the Bible Knowledge Commentary, I think it, it gets this right. It reads, in Romans 13, 8, Paul commanded with the use of the, 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 the imperative in present tense, let no debt remain outstanding. So literally, he's not saying that you can never go into debt, but you have to pay your debts back. Right? Do not keep on owing anyone anything is really the thought there. Psalm 37, 21 says, the wicked borroweth and pays not again. Doesn't pay it back. But the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. So a righteous man does not ignore his debts. He gives liberally to good causes, and he gives back, he always pays back what he owes. He owes no debt to anyone. Now, there, again, there is no absolute prohibition against borrowing in Scripture, because even Jesus said, give to him that asks you. And from him that would borrow, do not turn away. That's in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 42. So Jesus did not forbid borrowing from someone. If somebody borrows something from someone, they're indebted to that person to pay it back. So that's what Jesus taught. Don't take it to mean that you are to give foolishly to anyone who comes to you and asks of you. Christians must be discerning with their money. Look in 1 
or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 for a moment. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw, separate yourself from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition. The tradition means the teaching that we have passed on to you, which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. So notice how he's using the word disorderly there. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any one of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who are walking among you in a disorderly manner, in this regard, is what he's saying, not working at all, but they're busybodies, they're, they're getting in trouble, they're causing trouble. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So Paul is saying, if anybody's out there and they're trying to receive money from people and they're not willing to work and they're capable of working, then you have no obligation to, to support them in that manner. And he, he strongly admonishes them to get to work. Now, when you think about borrowing and lending, the Bible has a lot to say about it. I don't know the exact number, but I know that the, the emphasis in the Bible on money exceeds the emphasis on prayer. It's hard to believe, but it does. It, it is, there's a vast amount of scriptures that touch on the subject of money, and rightly so, because it's, it's something we have to deal with every single day, right? Borrow, borrowing, incurring debt, spending, lending, all of those things. And the law of Moses at that time had many regulations about borrowing and lending. People could not charge excessive interest to foreigners. Jewish law also forbade all interest on loans where the debtor and the creditor were both Israelites. So if you're going to lend to a fellow you know, member of the community of God, and in, in, as it was in the Old Testament, the, the, the nation of Israel, you could not charge interest on the amount of money that you loaned to him. And you see this in Exodus twenty two twenty five. If you lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, charging, charging interest. Neither shalt thou lay upon him any interest or usury. And, you know, there were people who were doing that excessively, making money off it, which was forbidden. So then it is not a sin to take on a debt. But as a general principle in Scripture, and this is not a financial seminar, seminar, carrying a debt is portrayed in a negative way in the Scripture. Debt is likened in the Scripture to bondage. Proverbs 22 and verse 7 says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant. The borrower, if you're in debt, you are a slave to the lender. You're working to pay that money back plus interest, right? So that being the case, the best advice I can give you is do not take on any unnecessary debt. 
And if you are in debt, do all that you can to pay off that debt as quickly as you can, which is not an easy thing to do, right? Once you run up the credit card bills, it's just hard to make the minimum payment. They, they have you typically, once they reach you over a certain portion, they have you for life. It's a bondage. Now, there are exceptions to the general rule of not going into debt, but they are exceptions, and I'm not going to get into them. So I just want to remind you, especially during this season, watch your credit card spending, right? This is almost a phenomenal figure, but it is estimated, and this is current, and it's from a good source, that in this year, before the end of this year, before the the, the calendar turns to 2023, Americans will hold collectively $1 trillion in credit card debt. Wrap your, wrap your head around that. Americans are in credit card debt to the tune of $1 trillion. 50% of Americans are in the credit card debt to the tune of $6,000. That's, that's, that, again, is hard to imagine. So err on the side of caution before accumulating any debt. Seek financial advice from people who have their financial house in order. Don't go to someone who's in massive debt to get financial advice. And, and this is really important because debt reduces your ability to give to the Lord and to help others in need, right? And that's what we want to do. We want to support the work of the Lord, not accumulate homes and cars and all of these things. And we want to help people who have legitimate needs. And if you're in debt, you cannot do that. You're hindered from doing that. So I'm going to give you this financial principle. We can give you many, but here's a simple one. Going in debt for things you want but don't absolutely need is evidence of not being content with what you have. Going in debt for things you want, and look, we all want some things, right? But don't absolutely need, and I'm not saying it's absolutely wrong to get some of the things that you want, but don't, don't absolutely need is evidence of not being content with what you have. So are you content with what you have? Philippians 4.10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. They didn't have the opportunity to give him, to show their love for him. But he says, now they did. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I have learned in whatsoever state I am, and that's not California, I have learned therewith to be content. It's the state of your heart. It's your place in life. Are you content? First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we will carry nothing out. You can mark that down for sure. And then he goes on and he says this, paralleling the thoughts that the Lord shared, Jesus. Having food and raiment, let us 
be there with content. That's pretty minimal, right? You know, food, shelter, clothing, the basics of life. He says if we have this, we should be content. Now God in his goodness has given us much more than that. But he said godliness with contentment is great gain. Eusebia is the Greek word. And that denotes piety or reverence. It is that piety which is characterized by a Godward attitude that seeks to please him. That's godliness. Some people call it true worship or true devotion or true religion. Godliness is, is a practical awareness of God which extends to every area of your life. Now, it's easy in this world to get distracted there are things we just have to focus our thoughts on and, and some of it require you know, a lot of attention. But in the midst of, of the busyness of life, how many times a day do you stop to think about God? How many times are you aware of the presence of the Lord and the things of God? Godliness will make our hearts thankful if it is accompanied by contentment. Contentment. James Orr, the Bible teacher, said, Contentment means to be free from care, anxiety, restlessness, strong desires, because of satisfaction with what is already one's own. What you already have. If you have this kind of a contentment, you will not go into debt to get things that you think will make you happy. Because if we do that, then we are in effect putting things, those things, in place of God. And if we ever put anything in place of God, that is what? Idolatry. And the Bible is very, very clear about that. Your clothes could become an idol. Your cars, your homes, your guns, your jewelry, your tools, whatever, whatever else it is, the, the money that you spend on hobbies, all of that, food can become an idol. And where you spend your money, stop and think now, where am I spending my money? What am I spending my money on? Where you spend your money is a good indication of where your heart is at. I get this from Scripture. Matthew 6.21 Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What are you treasuring most of all in this world? Is it things or is it God? Well, we shouldn't go into debt, but there is a debt that's, that will always continue with us. And Paul mentions that. And it's the debt of love. He says, Owe oh, no debt to no man except the debt to what? To love one another. Chapter 12 was full of the significance of love. 
I don't know if you caught this when we went through this, but in verse 9, he said, Let love be without hypocrisy. In verse 10, he said, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, distributing to the necessity or the needs of the saints. That's love given to hospitality. That's showing love. And then he says in verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but, but rather give place unto wrath. That's the wrath for the Lord's judgment. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's Christ-like love. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. That is Christ-like love. So now we read here in verse 8, Oh, no man, anything but to love one another. In essence, this is saying that the Christian's obligation to love never ends. You can work your way out of debt if you have a financial debt, and hopefully you will before you die, right? You don't want to take, well, I guess you won't even take that with you, but you'll leave it on somebody else, right? But we have an obligation to love and never stop loving. It's an unceasing debt we owe because God has bestowed his love upon us. John 15, 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, ongoing, continually. As I have loved you, he never ceases loving us. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man should lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life for, his, for us, right? When we were not his friends, but his what? His enemies. Ephesians 5.2, he says, walk in love. Again, continually walk in love. As Christ also loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor or aroma. So there is no limit when it comes to showing love because our love for others is to be ever-increasing. And, and Christ loves us. Aren't you glad for this? Christ loves us with an unceasing, perfect love. It's hard for us to, to understand that because we don't understand all the ways of God. And we don't all, uh, understand all the things that, that God in His purposes for us in our sanctification sees fit that we must go through. The things that we call the trials of life. But you can be assured that God loves us with a perfect love. And we are to strive for Christ-like love towards others. And that's why Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Now, there were lots of commandments in the Old Testament to that effect. But this, this was new in kind. Because we, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, have the ability to carry this out. The Old Testament, the Old Testament believers... Wow, talk about the burden of the law, right? The Decalogue was Ten Commandments. That's called the Decalogue. We call it the Ten Commandments. But, it, but in, in, in addition to that were the Covenant Commandments. Over 600 Covenant Commandments that they were obligated to keep. Those Covenant Commandments, really, when you look at them, they really were derived from the Moral Decalogue. They were taking the moral decalogue and putting it into, into action in individual situations in life, applying those commandments to 
practical situations of life. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So that love that Christ showed us was demonstrated, right, in, in, in coming and laying down his life for us. It was an act of love. And Christian love is, is an act of love. It, it's, it's, it's a verb, right? Love is a verb. It's action. It's not mere sentiment. It's doing good for somebody. It's meeting their needs. And then Paul says that it's the fulfillment of the law. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loves another with Christ-like love has fulfilled the law. Now, we need to be clear that the law is not fulfilled by, by trying to keep the law. By law doing, because nobody can keep it perfectly, right? James 2.10 says you, you, uh, you sin, you break one commandment, and you're in effect guilty of everything. The, the law can only condemn. That's what Paul said, or Peter said in Acts 13. You know, thank God we, we've been freed by what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we could never be justified by the works of the law. We saw that in Romans 4 and 5. So the law is not fulfilled by law doing because nobody could keep it perfectly. But love empowered by the Holy Spirit, Paul says, fulfills the twofold requirement of the law. The first, the first in the commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11, what we would call the first portion of the Decalogue, have to do with our obligations or the commandments that are Godward. We can't have idols. We can't bow down and to, to any other gods. We have to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. We, we, those are Godward. Love toward God. Don't take God's name in vain, etc. But then the rest of those commandments are what we have to do concerning our neighbor. So there's the vertical commandments toward God and there are those horizontal commandments toward our neighbor. And the whole law, Jesus says, is grounded on these two things. On love to God and love to man. So then Paul, Paul points this out by pointing out the commandments. Romans 13, 9. For this, don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't steal. These are all offenses against your neighbor on that horizontal plane. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet what they have and maybe scheme to get it. And if there be any other commandment, that would be the covenant commandments in addition to the moral decalogue. Again, those ten commandments, they're all fleshed out in the covenant commandments. So Paul just covers it all and says, if there be any other commandment. It, in, in this saying, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, you will love your neighbor as yourself. So all the commandments of the Decalogue horizontally toward your neighbor and then all of the commandments in the covenant commandments, hundreds of them, which have much to do with the neighbor in addition to God, he says it, it's all fulfilled in the singular command to love your neighbor as yourself. To love God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Mark 12, 28. 
One of the scribes came, and having heard him, heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? This is a scribe asking Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, and he said, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Godward. The first part of the moral decalogue. This is the first commandment. And the second, the second part of the moral decalogue. Horizontally. The second is like this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then Jesus says there is... There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. That's the first part of the Decalogue, right? And to love him with all your heart, and with with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and with all, all your soul, and to love your neighbor as himself. That's the second part of the Decalogue is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You can bring all your gifts. Many Old Testament Israelites did that. They'd bring sacrifices, even blemished sacrifices. And they thought they were pleasing God with this. But it was not an aroma that was well-pleasing to Him. Because they had ought against their brother. They were not keeping the first part of the Decalogue. They weren't honoring God with all the honor that they were to show to him. So he answered correctly. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly in verse 34 of Mark 12, means wisely, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. You're you're paying attention in Sunday school. You're on the right track. You're getting it. You're getting it. And it says after that, nobody dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) So let's summarize it. Verse 10. This unceasing love. Love worketh no ill toward its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you're really showing this love toward toward your, your fellow neighbor, toward other people, to other believers. You are fulfilling the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. It's all comprehended in that one thing. Paul expressed the same idea in focusing on loving thy neighbor in Galatians 5.13. Brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. We all know what that means, right? Oh, how many times have I heard people tell me, we have liberty in Jesus. You don't have liberty to sin, right? You don't have never been granted a license to sin. Christ paid off your sin debt so that you can live for him, right? And not for yourself. So do not use your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. And then he says this, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. The whole law. The Decalogue, the Covenant Commandments is fulfilled in one word. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Obviously, it's love for God first and then love for the neighbor. That's the golden rule, right? 
Love your neighbor as yourself, right? But he says this, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not being consumed of one another. What are you doing? Biting and devouring another Christian, another believer. And what's what's their typical reaction? To bite and devour back. And you're consuming each other. That's what Paul is saying. But he said, love does no harm to another. Biting and doubt and devouring is harmful. So if you love your neighbor, you will not commit adultery with his wife. You will not murder him. You will not steal from him. You will not lie to him or about him. You will not covet the things that he has, nor will you break any other commandment which forbids doing harm to your neighbor. And that's a broad term, right? So love is the fulfillment of the law in that the whole of the Old Testament law in relation to God and interaction with others is is contained in the singular command to love. And you won't even know you're doing it. You just love. As Christ has empowered you to love. And you will be fulfilling commandments of the law that you don't even know are in there. God the Holy Spirit has a unique way of applying things we don't even really understand. Just by the power of the Spirit of God working in us in love. And through us. So 1 Peter 1.22 says, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, Through the Spirit. If you're a believer, you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You've purified your souls through obedience to the truth, through the Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit, bearing upon your heart to turn to Christ. So seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned or unhypocritical love of the brethren. Wow, you would think that that would be enough. You could put the period right there. Unfeigned, unhypocritical love. What does Paul say? Don't put the period there. Go beyond it. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. You know, you know that's love on fire. That, that's, that is powerful. Do you love your husband fervently? Do you love your wife fervently? Do you love your children fervently? Children, do you love your parents fervently, passionately, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? Putting them first. In Colossians 3, there are some put-offs and some put-ons. Actually, actually, here in Romans 13, he says we're to, to put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's next week's message. But in Colossians 3, you're going to find some put-offs and put-ons. So turn there. Colossians 3, verse 8. Now ye also, circle it, put off all of these. Anger, wrath, malice, 
blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. All right, that should not be once named among the believers. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. That's before you were saved. That's the old man. And you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. And then he continues on. Put on. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. You know, I, I haven't, I haven't always been kind to people. Sometimes it's a hard, it's hard being kind to certain people. But when I go, I, I would hope that most people would remember me by, you know, what I wanted most of all. Not to be a great pe- preacher, but to be kind to people. That, that's really what I would want to be remembered by. Humbleness of mind. Meekness. Long-suffering. That's what we're to put on. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. But watch this. Verse 14. And above all these things. Because they, you really can't do those things without what he is just is going to say here now. And above all these things, put on love. Which is the bond of per- perfectness. And it's the bond of perfectness, which means completeness. Because it fulfills all the demands of the law. To love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Look, we can't get away from Paul's teaching on the love in the Bible, right? Sometimes, you know, you, you think about a message. I think about a message. And, wow, this is, this is really about love. And I've preached so much on love, <laughs> For so many years, what am I going to say? And there's always more to say. And, and guess what? For you, you've heard a lot of preaching on love. But there's always more to do when it comes to love, right? It's the unceasing debt that we all have.